Hello again. Uh, as I said before, I'm Doug Moss, one of the teaching pastors here at St. John. I'm very excited to continue our series on the gratitude effect, uh, step three. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I highly encourage you to go online and check those out. Week one, uh, the step one of gratitude effect was Pastor Dion talking about how gratitude is a choice that we make that precedes the good things that happen to us. It's not a result of good things. Uh, last week, Pastor Howard talked about how gratitude can change our attitude towards an optimistic perspective. Uh, on life. And now week three today, we're going to talk about how gratitude makes us courageous. Uh, and we're going to do that using one of my favorite Bible stories of all time. Before I get into it, I have to warn you, prep you, steal you uh, for something, because we're going to be talking about David and Goliath, which means that I have to prepare you for something that Tim Mackey calls the VeggieTales factor. Which means this, when you try to talk about a Bible story that has been one of the ones that's been kind of plucked out and decided that this is for kids, uh, it makes it hard for us as adults for a couple of reasons. First is that when you take a story and you make it kid-friendly, you have to water it down and make it very generic uh, and come up with kind of a feel-good moral of the story that might not actually have been the same as the real meaning of the story, but you have to do that because it's what you do for kids. Uh, like my, my favorite example of that is Noah's Ark. I mean, that's a story about how God drowns everybody, but it's got animals. So let's throw that on a baby blanket. And so David and Goliath has a bit of a similar effect. Like for those of we, we think, oh, it's about a Dave and the giant pickle and, and, uh, and it's, it's um, you know, it's this kind of silly thing that we remember from our childhood. But, um, but as we get into it, our sermon today uh, is step three of the gratitude effect. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 284, or if you've got it on a phone or a tablet or your own Bible, I encourage you to follow along. The second reason why this is a hard uh, story and why the VeggieTales factor comes into play is that once something has been watered down and made kid-friendly, it makes it then hard for us as adults to approach it with a clear view, right? We're we're so um, biased by what we remember. Uh, It makes it hard to actually, with fresh eyes, with a blank slate, with no biases or prejudices, to just approach a Bible text and see what it's about. And I've seen that even, uh, I've been getting feedback, I've given this message twice now this weekend, I've already gotten feedback from people that even in their Bible studies as adults, and they, they cover this story, it's very hard to break out of what is just so strong from our childhood. So for those of you that are, are here with me, try your hardest to forget uh, any animated specials that you may know, try your hardest to forget Sunday school lessons, and to really engage with this text with fresh eyes. Uh, let me give you a quick summary in case there are some people here that don't know this story. Um, if you didn't grow up uh, in the church, although it's become such a culturally important story that you've probably still heard it, but let me give you just a quick summary of the story of David and Goliath. So you see there's two sides in this conflict. There's the Philistine army, and then there's the Israelite army, Uh, and they're camped out on opposite sides of a valley, and the Philistine army every morning sends out their champion, this nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath. And every morning he says, send out a champion of your own to fight me. And if I lose, we'll go away. We'll leave you alone. You can win. But if I win, you'll be our slaves forever. And I'll spread your carcasses out for the wild dogs and birds to eat. Again, children's story. 
And for 30 days, Goliath comes out every day and his, and his challenge goes unmatched because for 30 days, the Israelites are quaking in their boots in terror until such a time as a young shepherd from the fields who wasn't even old enough to be in the army but was bringing some food to his brothers comes to the camp to drop off food and hears Goliath issue this challenge, not only challenge them to a fight, but also he curses and blasphemes their God. Uh, he says, if you really trusted your God, you'd fight me. And David gets very angry, this young shepherd. And he, and he asks around, what, what's the king going to do about this? What, you know, what's, what's gonna, how's he going to face this giant? Uh, and the report comes back to him, well, the king says anyone that defeats this giant gets to marry his daughter, the princess, uh, and have her hand in marriage. And David's like, eh. Oh, and anyone that beats the giant won't have to pay taxes again for the rest of his life. And then David's like, sign me up. I will face this giant. And so he goes to King Saul's tent and he says, I'll take on this giant. And King Saul looks at this young man and says, how? You know what? You need armor. And so Saul goes and he gets his armor and he gives it to David. And David says, armor? Nah. I don't need your armor. And then Saul says, but he's got a spear. And, and, you know, here, take my sword. And David says, sword? Nah. I don't need your sword. And then with all the hubris and arrogance of a teenager, he just marches out, grabs some stones out of a riverbed, and goes and challenges Goliath. And when Goliath sees this scrawny young man coming, he laughs and mocks and says, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he threatens David that he's going to take his carcass and lay it out for the birds and the wild animals. Apparently, that's what you did with carcasses back then. And then David says this to Goliath. And this is the great climactic moment. David says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And with that boast, David loads up a rock takes a sling, shoots it at Goliath, nails him in the middle of the head. He falls to the ground. David cuts off his head. And then the Philistines run in fear and the Israelites plunder and win the day. And that's the story of David and Goliath. And that's how it's been presented to me. That's how it's been presented in lots of Sunday schools, hopefully with a little less of the carcassing and the wild animals and, uh, and all that. But that's, that's the story as we know it. And if that's the story that you hear, it's pretty easy to come up with a pretty obvious moral. And the moral is this, that if you are brave enough and trust in God enough, you will strike down giants. But as I've looked back at that story in recent years and as an adult, that interpretation seems to fall short to me. That seems to be a bit overly simplistic and not really a message that we want to be going out there uh, and and using as our guide in the world. For for this reason, there's a movie, and the movie is fine, but it's got one moment that I really enjoy. It's a movie called The Other Guys, uh, and it's a satirical comedy, and it's kind of lampooning some things in American culture, but it starts out, the, the beginning of the movie of The Other Guys, you meet Samuel L. Jackson and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and they are the baddest, toughest, 
bravest cops on the New York PD. And there's no criminal they're scared of. There's no situation they run away from. They dive through car wrecks and jump through fires and and they'll do anything to get their man. That's how brave and fearless and tough they are. And then five minutes into the movie, the other guys, they're chasing some bad guys who zip line off of a 10-story building. And because Samuel L. Jackson and The Rock are such tough, brave cops, they just jump right off the 10-story roof after those criminals. And they die five minutes into the movie. And it turns out the movie's not about them at all. Because the reality is, you can be brave, you can be tough, you will still die if you jump off a 10-story building. And if there are giants in our lives, yes, we've got this one story where a guy went and fought a giant, but most of the time, when a shrimpy, scrawny teenager goes up against a military man, you will die. Bravery and courage are not some magic Hill that just by having you're going to triumph and prevail in all sorts of situations. And as I look at this story and I look at how it's been simplified and watered down for our young people and then how it ends up becoming something we read even in adulthood, the message can't possibly be if you're just brave, you're going to beat giants. And I'm not the only one who's skeptical. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who's a very popular sociologist and author, well, he's a very popular author. His books sell a lot. I can't vouch for whether he's a popular sociologist. I, I don't know who gets invited to those sociology parties. Um, but at the very least, he's a popular author. Uh, and he's written a lot of books that have said a lot of things. But one book he wrote was called David and Goliath, uh, where he actually goes after this very story. Uh, and what he says about David and Goliath as he gets into it is this quote, We consistently get these kinds of conflicts wrong. This David and Goliath conflict, little guy versus the big guy, we get them wrong. We misread them. We misinterpret them. Giants are not what we think they are. And Gladwell goes on to deconstruct the entire parable of David and Goliath. And see, the first thing he does is he gets rid of all the things that he thinks are extra or irrelevant or were added onto the story and don't matter. And so first he gets rid of God because there's no reason to think you need God in this story. Secondly, he discards whether it's a historically verifiable or accurate tale. It doesn't really matter. This is a parable. It's a fable at its root. But the parable, the moral of the lesson is not be brave and and be giant. The moral of the lesson is this. We got the conflict backwards. David is not the underdog, according to Gladwell. Goliath is the underdog. Goliath was always going to lose this fight. He just didn't know it yet. And he points out all these things. Uh, he talks about Goliath and his, as impressive as he looked, nine feet tall, um, that in fact he probably was quite weak. Uh, and he bases that off of we have nine feet tall people around today. And by and large, that's because of a genetic abnormality, a condition that means their bones kept growing. But it also then results in that they're actually far weaker uh, than most people because their bones and their muscles are under such strain trying to support such a larger skeleton uh, that they're actually not very strong. And he points out in the story that Goliath had to have his armor bearer carry his shield uh, because presumably Goliath wasn't actually strong enough to carry his spear and his shield. He points out that giants um, often have weaker vision uh, because of, of the, the genetic thing that led to that. Uh, and so Goliath probably couldn't even see very well. And there's a part in the story when David comes up close with his shepherd's staff and Goliath says, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? Uh, 
plural. And Gladwell speculates that maybe he had blurred, like he thought there were more than one stick. He thought David had two sticks because he couldn't see very well. And then at one point he even beckons David and says, come here so I can kill you. Uh, and, and Gladwell says it's because he knew he couldn't go after him and chase him. He couldn't see well enough. He wasn't fast enough. Um, and that he himself was weak. Not only that, Gladwell looks at the history of slingshots and points out that, in fact, in ancient battles, uh, having an army of, of slingshot people was hugely decisive in battles. And he looks at the accuracy uh, and, and uh, the kind of stones it would have been. And Gladwell comes to the conclusion that just any regular shepherd, not a divinely inspired one, not David where God's giving him a victory, just any run-of-the-mill shepherd with a sling had a weapon that would be equivalent to inaccuracy and lethality to a modern-day handgun. Gladwell looks at this story and says, this isn't about how amazing it is that God helps someone beat a giant. This is saying that Goliath brought a spear to a gunfight, and he was always going to lose. And from that, Gladwell draws these, these morals that say, in the same way we assume that the biggest company or the, or the strongest athlete, or, you know, all these people are going to win and the little guy doesn't have a chance. But if the little guy is willing to be innovative and disruptive the way David was innovative and disruptive by choosing a better weapon to face off against this giant, uh, then we can actually prevail against the large and immovable forces in our life. And so that's Gladwell's take. And it, it's certainly interesting and powerful, and, and I appreciate uh, that he's not just taking a story at face value and he's trying to call out maybe something that we've been doing wrong with this parable. But, but Gladwell, to get to that, had to use this deconstructionist technique that I've alluded to, which is this idea that you can take an old document, strip away all the stuff they thought it was about, and then really get at the nuggets of truth underneath it. And I frankly question that approach. It would be the same, like if I wrote a love letter to my wife and then like 200 years from now they unearthed it somehow and they found it and they were looking at it and they were saying, oh, we need to study this, this love letter. And first of all, we got to throw out all this lovey-dovey stuff about the wife. Like who, who cares about any of that? Like we're just trying to be historians and figure out what life was like in 2017. And, and they'd look at this line and this poem and, and it would say, you know, I love you as much as I love my iPhone. And they'd say, all right, forget the wife stuff. What's this iPhone he's talking about that he compares her to, you know? Did she like that? We don't know. Is it a good thing to be an iPhone? And, and, but they, they'd start by getting rid of the very reason I'd written the letter in the first place. If it was a letter to my wife, then you can't just divorce that from the thing to try and find some historical truths. And so my problem with Gladwell's approach and with this whole deconstructionist approach is that they're doing that exact same thing. They're saying, take the God stuff out, take the history stuff out, what's the underlying wisdom that we can find in these stories? And I think by doing that, they've set themselves up to actually miss the point even more than just a children's Sunday school class might. And so let me address those two things, and then from there we're going to pivot to what I think is probably the better way to approach it. And so the first is that Malcolm Gladwell thinks that this is not a historically verifiable or accurate tale. Uh, he thinks it's just a myth, like Greek myth, the Iliad, or the Enuma Elish of Babylon, like, you know, like these kind of old ancient texts. Uh, but what I want to point out to you is that the Bible in the Old Testament is a far different style of, of writing than anything else that was going on in the world at that time. It, you, you can look back at the Egyptian myths and all these things and say, oh yeah, those were legends, those were mythologies, those weren't meant to be taken literally, but you cannot say that 
about the Old Testament Bible texts. And let's look at the story itself to find out why. See, this is how this story starts out. It says, now the Philistines gathered their forces. And again, this is a verifiable people group. We know who they were. We know where they lived. They gathered their forces for war and they assembled at Soko in Judah. This is a specific town in a specific tribe. We know where this is today. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Okay? Then Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, this very specific valley, and they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. That's the first three verses of the story. Notice the difference. This is not some Gilgamesh epic where like, oh, and then Gilgamesh went and he just slaughtered lots of people. We don't know where it was or when it was or what armies were there, but we just know it happened. This isn't a mythology. This is a detailed and precise recounting of historical accuracy. They know where it was. They even know what the troop movements were. They know where the Philistines gathered and where Saul and the Israelites met to meet them. Uh, And not only that, this isn't just some vague, oh, we think it happened somewhere around here. They use specific place names that we still know today. You could Google map the Valley of Elah today and it's there. In fact, I did that. This is a Google map image. I just typed this in on Google Maps. I said Valley of Elah and boom. And just to give you some um, perspective. So this is the Mediterranean. This is north part of Africa. There's Europe. And over here in the Middle East, we got a little red Google dot on the Valley of Elah. So let's zoom in a little bit more on that. All right. And so here's Egypt. Here's Saudi Arabia. Here's Syria, you know, where there's been all that turmoil lately. I mean, we know where this is right in the middle of all this is the Valley of Elah. Let's zoom in one more time. And now we can use actual satellite imagery. This is what the Valley of Elah looks like right now today in 2017. There's highways running through it now. You know, it's, it's been updated. There's a modern city here and, and one here, but, but this is it. This is the Valley of Elah. And so Soko was right here on this promontory. Azika was right here. And so when it says that the Philistines drew up to the Valley of Elah and set camp between Soko and Azekah, we know exactly where their army was camped. They were all up on this hill. And then when it says that Saul and the Israelites met them and brought, went to the Valley of Elah and took camp on the opposite side of the valley, we know that Saul and the Israelites were on this hill. We can see it right now today and we can even map out the very troop movements of this battle. We know where it was. This is not just a, a legendary mythical fable. This is a real place with, re, with a real battle that happened. And then one more thing I want to point out because this blows my mind. Let's go back to the text. This is now the end of the battle, all right? This is after David has beat Goliath. Uh, It says this, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. And again, those are two cities. They were Philistine cities. We know where where they were. They were were Philistine cities that have been mapped for, for a variety of places and reasons. And then the Philistine dead were strewn along the Sha'arayim road to Gath and Ekron. And I want to draw your attention to this. Uh, Now go back. Sha'arayim, it's a a weird Hebrew word. What's interesting is no one knows what this is referring to, but we know what the word means. Sha'arayim is a Hebrew word that means double gate. And so it says their dead were strewn along the Sha'arayim road, the double gate road. But you'll notice they didn't translate it into English, even though they did the rest of it. And it's because we have not known for 4,000 years what this meant. 
Because fortified cities, by definition, only have one gate. That's kind of the point. You don't want to have a lot of doors and entryways to your city for people to attack you. If you're going to build a fortified city, you're going to build it with one gate. And as they've excavated and done archaeological digs, what they found all throughout Israel from that time period is forts with one gate. And so they leave this word untranslated because for 4,000 years we haven't really known what it meant. And so they just leave it in the Hebrew. Well, it's the Sha'arayim Road. Must just be something they called it. But here's why I say Gladwell and others are wrong. Because check this out. In 2007, they started an excavation right here. And you can see it's a little discoloration, a little circle right here on the map. Again, this is something you can see from satellites right now today. They started excavating that and they found a fortified city that dates back to Saul's time. Not only that, as they got deeper, you know what they found? It has two gates. The only fort in all of the region, all of that time period, this fort has two gates. One gate coming down this way to Valley Vila and one gate going down the backside of the hill. It's the only one like it. And, and I look at that and I say, this is amazing. This happened, this uh, archaeological dig started in 07, just finished four years ago in 2013. And something that was a mystery for 4,000 years, we now today in 2017 know what that was about. And so when I look at this Bible story, I don't just discard it as, oh, it's a myth, it's a legend. It was just something to encourage people and make them feel good. This is an actual battle with an actual place with a double gate fort where God's people won a huge victory. So step one is don't just discount these stories as something that we tell to our children and that they're fairy tales like the tooth fairy uh, or like other things. Uh, sorry, I probably should have made kids cover their ears for that one. Um, it's not a fairy tale. It's not something to encourage people with just this mythical, magical thing. This is real. This is true. And then the second thing that Gladwell does wrong is that he assumes that the God stuff is just extra fluff that... that um, hyper-religious, you know, idiot, ancient people added to their story because there was no other way to describe it. Uh, And so uh, to engage with that, I want to point something out, and it's actually right here in our sanctuary. Uh, If you came in this morning, you saw on that wall we have a stained glass window, and it's shuttered right now, so that's why I've got it pulled up here. And that stained glass window is a part of our own heritage here at this church. And it says on it, by scripture alone, And it's a picture of all God's word and what he has for us. And then it has a Bible verse, John 5, 39. And so let's see what John 5, 39 says. See, this is Jesus after he's risen from the dead, talking to his own disciples and friends who are super confused by everything that had been going on. And Jesus said this to them, you study the scriptures diligently. And by the scriptures, he means the Old Testament, what we're diving into this morning. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Or for the Gladwells and deconstructions, you study them because you think there must be some wisdom in them that keeps people coming back to these stories. But in fact, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus himself gives us the key to understanding these Old Testament stories. The whole point of the Old Testament is that it points to Jesus. It testifies about him. It's not just meant for a moral lesson. It's not just a nice fairy tale to tell our children at night. It was there to point to him, and it's a historically reliable uh, means for us to know God's power in his people. And so with that key... In hand, we can look at the David and Goliath tech and we can unlock it and we can say, all right, if this story somehow points to Jesus, 
What does that mean for the way that we understand it and why God did this in human history? And so this is the point I want to make to you this morning. You and I are not David. You and I are not David. Malcolm Gladwell, our our nice kidified versions of these stories, they make us be David. They say, oh, well, if I'm David, I want to be brave like David. Or if it's Malcolm Gladwell, he says, oh, if I'm David, I want to be innovative and disruptive like David in the face of giants. But you and I are not David. And any interpretation or understanding that starts from that is going to be wrong before you've even gotten off the ground. David in this story represents Jesus Christ. You see, what what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that all scripture points to him is that God in his bigness and largeness over time knew that he was going to send his son to save human beings at this one moment in history. And so he seeded all of these stories of God's people with examples, foretastes, uh, sneak peek trailers of this big moment when Christ actually came on earth. So that when Christ came, God's people would recognize him. So that when Christ came, people would say, oh, this is just like how God moved back then, and now he's doing it again. And and so these Israelites had a moment where a Passover lamb was the means by which God saved them from the Egyptians, and the blood of the lamb rescued their lives. So that then when Jesus comes and says, I am the real Passover lamb, my blood is going to save you forever, God's people go, oh... That's why we have that story. Or when in the period of the judges where the, where the Israelites were constantly being oppressed by, by foreign armies and, and people and a judge would rise up and that judge would point them back to the truth of God's word and the judge would rescue them from the enemy and then Jesus comes and says, I am the ultimate judge and the people go, oh, that's what you were doing there. And that these stories, that they're real and they're historical and they are true, but they are also guideposts, signposts that are pointing us to when Jesus comes and does it for real. And so when we look at the David and Goliath story and we understand that we are not David, Jesus Christ is what's being represented by David, then we start to see what God is doing and teaching us in this story. When we see uh, how David... um, uh, tops off Goliath's head and and we look back at Genesis 3 where there was a prophecy that said that God's going to send a savior and and Satan will strike his heel but the savior will crush his head and so then when David crushes his head we say oh there's the connection that's going on or when uh, Saul tries to help David and he says oh if you're going to beat the giant you're going to need my human help you're going to need some armor you're going to need some weapons and David says I don't need the works and tools of of a human being to help me beat this giant and then we look at that and we say oh just like when Jesus Christ came and, and, and conquered death on our behalf there was nothing we could contribute to that victory we couldn't be holy enough or good enough or righteous enough we, we couldn't conquer death on our own we couldn't even contribute to Christ's conquering of death and so that's what we're seeing in this story David is meant to be a, a, a milepost in the history of God's people that reminds us that God is the conqueror God defeats the giants, not us. And so if God defeats the giants, if we are not David, then who are we in the story? Well, I I have bad news. It's not all that flattering. We are the Israelites, which makes sense because they're God's people. And if we are people who follow God, then we are God's people. 
And so these Israelites who are quaking in their boots, who are unable to face and defeat the giant on their own, that's who we are. And that brings us to how this ties into our sermon series. See, after David wins the battle, David ran and stood over Goliath. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Here's where we come in. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arayim road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. See, gratitude to me is not just this idea that, oh, we should just be thankful in this vague, general way. Oh, we should just be thankful. For what? Gratitude is recognizing that God's got it. Gratitude is that moment when we realize these giants in our lives are not for us to face on our own. These giants are God has already taken them out. God's got it. And when our gratitude recognizes that God is in control, that God has this, then we can be courageous. Then we can charge forward like the Israelites and get the plunders of the victory that God earned on our behalf. I think of a story uh, a little bit ago. I had the opportunity to interview for a job with an organization. uh, And and in a quirk of timing, God actually provided for me a a far better job that I found out about after the interview had been scheduled. Uh, And so I, but I was obligated to the interview. And so I went in with this board of directors, knowing that God was in control and that I already had a much better job lined up for me, which then gave me the freedom to be honest in the interview in a way that we often aren't. And in that interview, I went in because it was an organization I, I was for and in favor of, and I just said, you know what, guys, honestly, I'm not even the right person you should be interviewing for this job. I'm not the right kind of person. You should be looking at this kind of person, because this is what your organization needs. And then not only that, and I was polite, and I was friendly and respectful, but I said, but not only that, I think that you're, you're actually missing an opportunity. You're uniquely located to do some amazing good in a way that other organizations are not. Uh, and I said, you need to shift your focus, and you need to go off and do this thing. And I just let them have all the full, courageous force of my honesty because I knew God had it. I wasn't worried that I wasn't going to get that job afterwards because if you know that God's got you, you can be courageous and you can tell the truth and you can do whatever in these moments. And then as it turns out and as it always does in these stories, you know how that story ends. They offered me the job and then I turned them down because God had something better for me. But in the same way, if God's got it, then our gratitude can be courageous. That's not empty and meaningless. That's not just foolishly thinking I can charge after giants. Our gratitude comes from recognizing that the giants have already been defeated because God's got it. I don't know about you. I'm facing some potentially trepidatious Thanksgiving dynamics in five days (laughs) because we've got some extended family that I don't regularly see and and, I, and my attitude just frankly has been terrible about it because we've got Aunt Margaret who is just going to say something racist that I'm going to have to explain to the kids. And I don't want to have to do that. We've got alcoholic Uncle Fred and he's got his latest conspiracy theory that I'm going to have to pretend to agree with just for the sake of getting through dinner. And I don't want to do it. I, I would rather just not go. I'd rather feign an, an illness or an excuse. But in that moment, 
in the season of gratitude and thanksgiving, rather than just being vaguely thankful for some pilgrims, in that moment, if I go, God's got this. God is saying to me, Jesus is saying, Doug, I've already wiped out the spiritual, there's a spiritual battle going on, but it's not against these people or these relatives or these frustrating, broken human beings. The battle's against the spiritual forces of darkness, and I won that battle. You're not here to fight anymore. You don't have to try and, and, and combat lies and evil and sin and brokenness. These are the hostages of the battle, and all you have to do, Doug, is be a force of hope and peace and courage in their lives. If I know God's got this, I can go into Thanksgiving dinner with a smile on my face because I have one job to do, and it's not to prove them wrong or redeem them or fix them. It's just to mop up the plunder, which is to take people that God has already died for and show them love in whatever limited way I can for one weekend out of the year. I stress about finances. And in those moments, God's saying to me, Doug, I got this. Forget finances, you live and breathe and have your existence just because of the sustaining power of my love in your life. And you're going to worry about the bills getting paid? If God's got this, I can let my gratitude turn into courage that says, you know what? It's true. If God's got this, I can tithe on the first day of the month and not just see what's left over on the last day of the month. If God's got this, I can face whatever is coming for me, and I know there's hardships left in my life to face. I'm confident there are more things coming to face you. And it could be people and hardships and evil and injustices. It could be sickness. But in that moment where the bad thing happens, where where the person does the evil to you, where you get that diagnosis of cancer, in that moment, if you're able to say, but I know God's got this. And neither life nor death The greatest heights, the deepest depths, the most powerful beings on this earth or beyond this earth, nothing can separate me from the love of God and the victory that he has already won on my behalf. If God's got this, I can face even cancer courageously because what can it do that the giants haven't already done? The reason this story is so important is not because it's a great kid's story with a great animated special. It's not just some empty moral that says, oh, be brave and it'll work out. It's not some deconstructed parable that says if we're innovative enough, we can disrupt the giants in our lives. What it is is a concrete, historical truth for us to lean on that says you don't have to be brave enough to fight giants. God already fought the giants. They've been laid low and he did it with none of your help. And if we're truly grateful for that, if we recognize how much God's got it, not just over the giants of death and sin and the devil, but over the giants that would attempt to stand against us in our life, we can be courageous and charge forward with whatever's left for us to do. Because all the hard things are done. I don't know what you might be going through right now. I don't know what you might be going through in the future. But what I do know is this one irrevocable, groundbreaking truth that we see in this story and I promise you is true in life right now. No matter what is going on with you, God's got this. He's got you. And the one who can prevail over giants, the one who can conquer death, will not let you fall. 
and he will not let you fail. Amen. Now, if you're like me, this is great and it's easy to hear. It's not always easy to remember and live out. So if you would join me uh, in confessing for a moment how this plays out in our lives, would you please rise? I think we lose sight of the battles that God has fought and won on our behalf. I think we see obstacles in our life and we think that they are giants when in fact they are just merely hindrances in a life that's already been made victorious through Christ's power. I think we let fear, shame, and doubt dictate our actions because we lose sight of what God has done and we try to prevail in our own strength. And our own strength is worth fearing and doubting because it will not defeat the giants. But in this moment, let me tell you this victorious truth. That when you lose sight of God and his victories, he has not and will not lose sight of you. And that if you are just willing to reposition yourself and remember where you stand, that we are not at the front lines trying to defeat these giants in our own strength and power, but we're in the rear guard benefiting from the victory that God has already won on his behalf. And in that moment, we can trust and be grateful for him. And in that moment, we can be spurred to a courageousness that cannot be overcome. And so I declare to you this morning that whatever giants you've tried to face on your own, whatever obstacles you've let darken your sight from what God has done for you, right now, today, God declares you victorious. Right now, God says to you, you are my child. You are my sons and daughters, and I did not fail, and I will not let you fail. And he invites you to join him in his victory. Charge forward with gratitude and courage with whatever life has to offer you next. Amen.